Some years ago, Hurricane Andrew destroyed thousands of homes in South Florida. And in one of the areas, the wreckage looked like a war zone as houses were just leveled by this hurricane that swept through this one community in South Florida, except one house remained amongst all the wreckage. It stood there firmly anchored to its foundations while people were picking through the rubble of their fallen houses. And a reporter asked the homeowner why his house had not been blown away. And this is what was in the newspaper. I built this house myself, but I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. When the code called for two by six roof trusses, I used two by six roof trusses. I was told that a house built according to code will withstand any storm, and it did. Folks, just as Florida State has a code against storms, over these next 26 weeks, we're gonna give you a God's code for storms that are coming. And we are gonna, every Sunday, we are going to begin to teach you, I want you to get this, on how to build building according to code. We are going to begin to do that. And that's why every time you hear these words, the Bible says that's the building code. The Bible says that's the building code. That's the spot that I'm telling you can withstand any storm that comes your way. Jesus talked about the importance of building our lives according to that code. Jesus called the people who build according to God's building code. He called them wise. We heard the song today about a firm foundation. And Jesus says his building code is stormproof. He says, because it was built on a rock. Now listen to Jesus' storm code. It's the finale of the Sturman on the Mount as Jesus begins to share this final parable. Listen to this. So therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared, here comes the wise part, to a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is storm code. This is what it says. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew, slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built this house on the stand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Church, I want you to listen to me. We are in a storm right now in our nation. We are in a storm. We are watching, I want you to hear these words. We are watching a tsunami of filth slam against our homes and God's house and our young people today. A tsunami of filth has been unleashed. And if these two houses, our homes, and God's house are not built according to code, they will fall and great will be its fall. Now, folks, listen to me. Let me tell you what that storm is. I'm telling you, as I prayed about this, this storm, don't miss this, this storm is the majority calling good evil and evil good. That's the storm that we're in right now, that the majority around us is calling good evil and evil good. And the battle is coming, especially when the church starts calling evil, 
evil and good goods. That is going to be the battle that is going to come our way. When things start getting defined and start begin to get weeded out and all this. See, Isaiah talks about that storm. Isaiah talks about a people when he says that there is coming a time that people will call evil good and good evil. And, it's, and Isaiah says they'll substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. And that's why Jesus, jot this down, tells us these three things from that parable. He says we are, number one, all involved in building. Every one of us, individually and as a church, from this last power. We're all involved in building. That we are all building from our lives, our spiritual lives, to the house of God. But I want you to get this. But the materials for stormproofing is obedience to the word. Not listening to the word, but obedience to the words. See, being in church is not enough, but obedience is the key to stormproofing the house. He says everyone hears, but there's only the people on the rock that will obey. And that's why Jesus says that the real test comes when the storms come. That's how you know a test of your obedience. See, Jeremiah prophesies about a great fall to, to people both nationally and individually when there is no obedience. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, they were ashamed because of the abomination they, uh, they, that they have done. He says, they were not even ashamed at all. It was a question. Were they ashamed? He says, not even at all. They didn't even know how to blush over their sin. Therefore, they, they shall fall among those who fall, and at the time that I shall punish them, they shall be cast down. Now listen to this. Here comes the disobedience part. This is where the, the, the stormproofing was lost. Then he says this. He says, and thus says the Lord, stand by the ways. See and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. Look at the response. But they said, we will not walk in it. And I set a watchman over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Then in verse 18, he says, Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation. He's speaking to his people. He's speaking to a nations. What is among them? And he says this. He says, Hear, O earth, behold, I'm bringing disaster on the people and the fruit of their plans, because they, here comes the disobedience, because they have not listened to my words, and as for my law, they have rejected it also. That is the Matthew 7. That's Jeremiah saying exactly what Jesus said. That when a people begin to become disobedient to the very things that God has given to them, you start to see judgment come. That's why I believe what William Sullivan said is so true. He said, the best proof of God's existence is what follows when we deny it. He says, this is so important for us to understand. That's why these next 26 weeks, I want to give you those build, that building code. As we begin to talk about and hear what the Bible says a biblical worldview from A to Z, that as we go through this every single week, it'll all be compiled from and prepared for connect groups all over the world. Now here, I want you to get ready to write with me very quickly. Listen carefully. Why is the biblical worldview series important? Why is it important that we go through this? Here it is. Because one, the church must be equipped to stand. The church must be equipped to stand. And number two, the church must be equipped to speak with one voice. Let me say it again. The church must be equipped to stand. 
and the church must be equipped to speak. Now, folks, I want to just give you a warning because we are heading into the battle, which is the majority saying that evil is good and good is evil. And I want you to hear this. I believe we are already there in this storm that if you speak what this Bible says in public settings, people are going to lose their jobs. And some of you are going to be written up and put on reports and put on file, and you're going to be seen as somebody at that, at that job that I'm telling you folks that you are sitting here today and even listening today. When you speak up for truth today, because that's the battle that we're in, you are going to be targeted from college campuses to high schools, junior highs, from your job, you will be targeted because that's the battle. That's why we have got to, we've got to build according to code that when the storm comes, that God has a people that are equipped to stand in the midst of the storm that is coming. We need that today. What is a worldview? What is a worldview? Worldview is the lens you see life through. It's how you define it. It's how you see it and how you define it. Worldview is the tool for interpreting how you see and what is happening. Everyone has a worldview, but not everyone has God in their worldview. See, when God is left out, you're sabotaging the building code. Or when God is too small, you're sabotaging the building code. And you're cheating on the building code. I was reading the story of an old man who was fishing. And every time he caught a big fish, he threw it back into the water. And every time he caught a little fish, he threw it into his bag. And, in, and every time, it just went on and on and on. Big fish, back in. Little fish, I'm keeping. A bystander was, was very perplexed at this unorthodox manner and said, can you please explain to me why you are throwing the big ones away? And the fisherman didn't even hesitate. He said, listen, because I only have an eight-inch frying pan and anything bigger than eight inches doesn't fit into my frying pan. Let me just tell you something, TSC. We need a big frying pan here because we serve a big God here in this place. And we're not going to shrink down God to fit in our little minds and our little, little worlds. Because that's what's happening. Is because we don't understand something, we go ahead and shrink God down. Instead of a people walking in faith and believing in faith, what we have done is we have chosen to take the little pan instead of believing in the big gods. Now, folks, that's why it's shocking to me that the new studies are now showing among American pastors that are, that are, that are, that are preaching from small frying pan pulpits and small frying pan churches. And I'm sorry, I, listen, I know it's going to get dicey in here over these next, not just the next week, over the next 27 weeks, but just, you got to stay with me. Listen, there is a new nation survey. Listen to this. This is what's shocking to me. 41% of senior pastors now hold to a biblical worldview. 41%. This is small frying pan people. 28% of associate pastors have a biblical worldview. 28%. And now it says, here's the, here's the shocker. 12% of children and youth pastors hold to a biblical worldview. Which, which Barna says, it's now further evidence that, that now the culture is influ influencing the church more than the church influencing the culture. And I struggled whether to say this or not. And listen, I don't care anymore. 
I really don't. Listen, I'm, it just doesn't matter to me. I was listening to a, I really don't. I, I'm not going to be, I will not be mean. But I'm just going to say this because somebody has to say something. Listen, I know it's Super Bowl Sunday and all churches are preaching on super relationships and super duper people and you're super duper in your, in your head. Let me just tell you something. I'm, I'm done with all that. I'm sorry. It's, we have to be in a place where, folks, we're in a battle. We're in a war. We need to hear what God has to say to us. Folks, no. no listen, I've... Nothing against, nothing against Philadelphia and Kansas City, but just listen, I don't care. I really don't. Here's here's what matters, is we've got to win this battle. And I was listening to, to a Pentecostal preacher that has kind of gone sideways, his name is known, and, he's, and listen what he said, and this is where I, listen, it, it doesn't matter anymore. He has abandoned the building code because of the size of his frying pan, and this is what he said. He said he couldn't reconcile the sexual orientation of one of his family members. And because he couldn't reconcile that, and that, that their choice, their choice, which was against the word of God, that they would go to hell. And let me just tell you, in about, in a, when we get to the letter H, we are going to begin to deal with heaven and hell and eternity because hell is a real place. I'm just letting you know, but I'm, but I also believe that heaven is a real place today. And here's what happened. This Pentecostal preacher, thousand in his church, couldn't reconcile someone's choice and disobedience and them going to hell. So his answer to his dilemma, I heard it, is this, there is no hell and therefore everybody goes to heaven. It's called universalism. Folks, I'm telling you, it's sabotage in this storm. It's a sabotage. And folks, that's why we're living in a time, it doesn't matter. I want want a big frying pan. I believe in a big God. And listen, if I can't get it, it has to come from here every single time. The average time a youth pastor and a children's pastor stay at a church, it's the average, is now 17 months. 17 months. Why is there an attack against children's ministry and youth ministry? You know why? Because a person's worldview is built in those first 13 or 14 years. We have to pray for TSC kids. We have to pray for 212. Those that are watching, you have to pray for your children's ministry. Pray for youth pastors. Because they are the ones. Folks, these are key elements that we have got to get. I, I, I'll just give them to you, but you'll, you'll hear it. Because key elements of this worldview are so important because seven out of eight youth pastors and children pastors, seven out of eight don't even have a good world, biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? Let me just, I'll just list some of it to you. It's believing this, that there's absolute and objective truth exists, and that truth is defined in the Bible. What is a, what is a biblical worldview? That Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. God is creator of the universe. And the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian believer. That's a biblical worldview. It also is this, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is where our freedom is found. Not found in a program or a prescription. It's found in his death, burial, and resurrection. Salvation is a gift from God. You can't earn it on a bike. You can't earn it with a briefcase. You can't earn it selling magazines. You can't earn it by, by even martyrdom. You can, only, you can only receive it by grace. Salvation is by grace. Number, listen, Satan is a real enemy. That's a worldview. 
There is a heaven and a hell, and I'm just telling you this, and Christians must be public about their faith. People build their worldviews on six different grounds. Let me just give them to you. You just have to take quick pictures. Just hold up phones and just keep taking pictures. Here it is. Six grounds that they get them from. One, it's relativism. We'll talk about this. It's the majority decides. The majority decides. Subjectivism is, is how do I feel? Uh, I, this doesn't make me feel good. This is where the frying pan um, comes in. Pragmatism, does it work? Does it work? And if, if it grows the church, then it must be right. We just keep doing this regardless of what we say or don't say. Rationalism is I think. Postmodernism is I only care about what's right now for me, what's right for me right now. Or the final one is simply this, the Bible says. That's the final one. It's the final ground that we build on. I believe you must question every worldview, including Christianity. You question every worldview. You have to question Christianity. And I'm going to tell you where most worldviews fall apart is when you bring them to the worst moments of history in the world. When you, when you impose your worldview upon the Holocaust. Here, here's one. You ready for this? What does your worldview say about 28,000 deaths in Turkey and Syria from an earthquake? What, what does it say about that? What, what, is, what, do you, what does it speak to that? I, I want to thank God for you and your generosity. We'll show you hopefully next week. We have been sending money to help the, the, the families and the victims there we have two organizations because when there is a Christian worldview, there is compassion, there is mercy, there is generosity that says we're, it's not about what's happening here. You can, folks, I'm just telling you something inspires, something moves in the heart of God's people that you can put it against the worst moments of, of world history and it always stands against it, always comes out of it. As we go through these weeks of stormproofing our home, stormproofing the church, stormproofing our lives, some will say, Times Square Church, you've lost your mind. Some are going to say that's sobering truth. When Paul speaks to the political leaders in the book of Acts, those are the two places, those are the two moments or the two definitions that they had on Paul's worldview as he spoke to political leaders from kings to governors, the great and the small, and you're going to see it. And people thought he lost his mind, but even the ones that said you lost your mind are still saying you're almost convincing me. Listen to it in Acts chapter 26. This is what happens when Paul is standing and speaking with worldview. He says this, so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying, listen to this, both to small and to great, and standing before them, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place that the Christ was going to suffer. We talked, we just mentioned this. And that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he'd be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus, one of the, one of the leaders, said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. But I had a words, here it comes, of sober truth. For the king knows, now, he's, now he turns his attention towards Agrippa, and he says, the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, but this has not been done in a corner. And look what Agrippa does when now he is pointed out. King Agrippa, 
uh, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do, Paul said. He answered his own question. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. What I'm going to say over these weeks, some are going to look at it as madness, insanity. Some will look at this as sober truth, that people who live by the truth of the Bible are now being considered out of their minds. Four hours away from New York City, there is a little city just almost near Syracuse called Onondaga, New York. Not too long ago, police say a motorcyclist, a 55-year-old man, was driving a 1983 Harley-Davidson with a group of other bikers who were protesting the helmet laws of New York State. And they were protesting it by not wearing their helmets. The police said a motorcycle, a 55-year-old man who had no helmet on, died after he flipped his bike, flew over the handlebars, hit his head on the pavement in Onondaga, New York, near Syracuse. He was pronounced dead at the hospital. And troopers said, trooper says Kantos would have likely survived if he had been wearing a helmet. What's amazing is this, friends. Listen, God's laws are a description of reality and how we live life that you can't fight against God's laws and win. It's impossible. Just as I'm watching this man fight and protesting, we're not wearing helmets, and the very thing he's protesting against was the very thing that killed him. And I'm thinking to myself, folks, you can't do this with God's word. When God begins to give us his word, he's trying to protect us. He's trying to go ahead and equip us that when, when this comes, that it doesn't matter how much you want to protest this law. If God says it, if God decrees it, it's not going anywhere. When God puts gravity as a law in the universe, you can protest all you want. You can stand on top of the Empire State Building and say, I protest gravity. It, let, let me give you a hint. It's not going to work. Stand on top of it. God put that law in place. And you can't beat the law. You have to submit to the law and say it's put there for a reason for me. And as people will call God's laws insane, outdated, and non-binding, it's the very laws that protect our lives. That we're living in a society, and we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, that is challenging for every aspect of us. And all of a sudden, we're finding as we're trying to, trying to break God's laws, we're thinking that we're going to stay alive. Os Guinness in his book, Renaissance, says, for the followers of Jesus, listen to this, for the followers of Jesus, the voice of the people must never be taken as the voice of God. Listen to this. We live under a pressure that numbers are truth and numbers tell the truth and numbers make the truth. Get this now, a hundred million views and likes still never add up to truth, wisdom, or what is good and what is right. Folks, I'm telling you, a million people can say it's true, but if God's law goes against it, we go with God's law every single time. Everyone, hey, I want you to understand something. Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, but everyone is not entitled to their own truth. Let's be real clear about that. You can have an opinion, but don't tell me it's your truth. There's only one truth, and we'll get to that in a moment. We have facts today, but we need truth. 
The bandwagon is replacing the Bible. Horizontal pleasure is going over vertical authority. And here it is, folks. I'm just telling it right now. Thus says the Lord is always 51% of the vote. No matter what anybody else says, God always has the majority vote whatever God says in his word. My heart goes back to one of the early church fathers, Athanasius, which resounds to me today as Constantine, the, the, the emperor that was trying to Christianize everything and letting everything, every kind of doctrine come in. And he was telling Athanasius that the heretic Arius, that to leave his doctrine of Arianism alone, which would have been a fight against the biblical worldview, because um, that, that Arius was saying that Christ he wasn't God in the flesh. And they were trying to, to take this, 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 biblic, this, this leader, this early church leader, and all of a sudden they said he suffered such great pressure and even spent 17 years in exile. And at one point in the heat of the battle, someone tried to persuade Athanasius. And this is what they said. They said, don't you know that the whole world is against you, Athanasius? To which the bishop replied, then Athanasius is against the whole world. Folks, that is really what it's about. It doesn't matter what, every, what the crowd say. It doesn't matter how many likes, and it doesn't matter how viral a video is gone. This is where we stand. This is the building code against every single storm. The wisest man in history, Solomon, says something twice in that book, Proverbs. And we're told when something is said twice, we're told in Genesis that when God speaks twice, on something, the matter is certain and the matter is definite. Let me read to you what Solomon said. Here it comes. This is the same verse, two different sites. Here it is. He says, there is a way which seems right to a man, but in its end is the way of death. It says it twice. When it, means, when it says twice, it means this matter is certain and it's definitive. Listen to it again. There is a way which seems right to man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Let, let me read to you how the message paraphrases it. This is powerful. He says, there's a way that looks harmless enough, but look again, it leads straight to hell. There's a way that looks harmless, but in the end, it leads to hell. Listen to those words again. There is a way that seems right to man. There is, folks, I'm telling you today, I need more than seems right. I need, I need a house built on the rock. I don't, need, I don't need building material that seems right. It better be right today. America is faced with this whole thing as it's, as it's veering off course. Heard the story of a World War II aviator who was on one of the missions for bombing the, the enemy. The Allied forces were going and his instrument, they said his instrument was one degree off because they never recalibrated it after the last bombing mission. And he found out that the further and longer you fly one degree off, the further you get from the place you're supposed to be. One degree off is no big deal until you stay one degree off for years and for decades. You can't play, and, and, and at the end, when finally that one degree off, he has to ditch his bomber in the ocean, in the Pacific Ocean. You can't play with these foundational weeks where you end up ditching 
in an ocean into oblivion. It's this word, regardless of, of it, of how I feel about it, is this word. It's the laws of God. It is, it is what Augustine said. He said this, get this down. He says, if you believe what you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it's not the Bible you believe, it's yourself. Let me say that again. If you believe only the parts you like in the Bible and reject what you don't like, it's not the Bible you believe, it's you, you believe yourself. That's why the message, the Bible tells us as we begin to look closer and closer at this, as one of the darkest things that can happen is when men believe in themselves instead of believing in God. It's one of the darkest books in the Bible. It's the book of Judges. It looks much like our times today. G.K. Chesterton, the UK writer that, that got saved, said it's often supposed that when people stop believing in God, they believe in nothing. He said it's worse than that. When people stop believing in God, they believe in anything. That becomes the problem. The book of Judges shows this played out. The anything that Chesterton talks about is quite shocking when you look at it in the book of Judges. 300 years in the book of Judges. 300 years. And it's called the dark years of Hebrew history. And listen to the phrase that keeps showing up over and over again. Let me give it to you just in a number of different spots as we'll near our closing here shortly. Judges 17.6 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Look what happens. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Judges 18.1, in those days, there was no king of Israel. Judges 19.1, it came about, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Judges 21.25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It lays out a problem of that one degree off. It lays out a problem that begins to happen. And the problem is this. There was no king in Israel. And the result, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, how come? Because now man is king. Man is deciding what's right. Why? Because man is in charge now. And we're living in a country that we have, we don't have the king anymore. We have removed the king of kings from schools, from public places. We have removed him from courts. We've taken prayer out of everything. We've taken the Ten Commandments out of everything. We've taken the king out of Christmas, and now we have to call it a holiday. We have to call it sparkles and everything else. And, and, and let me just tell you this. When there is no king, man becomes king. When there is no king, man becomes king. I was in a hotel room a few years ago, and I was eating dinner because my flight got in late. I was speaking the next day. And as I was eating, I turned on the TV and ended up watching a, a sitcom. It was a sitcom called Everybody Loves Raymond. I want to tell you about an episode that I saw. It was an episode where Raymond's brother, Robert, was dating a girl from a religious family named Amy. And they came from a very conservative, she came from a very conservative religious family which was against having sex outside of marriage. And in this episode, they had a physical relationship. And the whole episode was about her virginity, and they were not married. And these are important. I know these are strong words on a Sunday, but I want you to listen. Her religious parents showed up at her apartment 
And now they are shocked as Robert and Amy come out on a morning and knowing that he has slept over that night. And here's what scared me about this episode and revealing about the spirit of this age. It's when Amy looked at her parents as they figured out that Robert spent the night, and this is what she said. Listen to these words. She said, Mom, Dad, here it comes. I've decided it's not a sin for Robert to spend the night. Those are the words. I, I have decided it's not a sin. Hold on. All of a sudden, Amy gets to decide. How dangerous is that? It's called postmodernism in its purest form. It's when individuals decide what truth is and what's the best preference for their own individual life. Amy has decided what is sin for her. Let me read that Proverbs 14, 12 out of another paraphrase out of the Passion Translation. Listen to these words. You can rationalize it all you want and justify the path of error you've chosen, but you'll find out in the end that you took the road to destruction. You can rationalize it all you want, but in the end, you've taken a destructive road. You can't decide what's right. That's not your prerogative. What do you mean by that, Pastor Tim? Because you can't trust ourselves and what our conclusions are. How can you say that, Pastor? Here it is. I don't say it. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Okay, say that with me. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Okay, here we go. Jeremiah 79. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, then how in the world can you speak truth if the heart is all messed up? How can you end up with the right conclusion because you've decided something is not sin, a certain lifestyle is okay? You can't decide that if your heart's not right. And the only one that can get the mouth speaking is when the heart is right, and it's when God cleans up our hearts by the blood of Jesus Christ. And let me just tell you this. I, how does that happen? Show up next week for the letter A on atonement and the cross, and I'll tell you how it gets fixed. We need to get our heart fixed. When you remove the king, then man becomes king. See, because, because and when man becomes king, then truth is personal. And if truth is personal, now we just say it's our truth. And it's impossible because of this church. Truth must come from outside of us, not from within us. It has to come from the outside because if our heart is messed up, we can only get truth from the outside. And the only one that can give us truth is God himself. It's the only one that can bring truth to us. Let me finish with this as the band begins to come. Next week, we'll start with A, the cross, the atonement, and what God has done to fix the human condition of the heart. The Bible has some really important questions that need to be answered. From the very beginning, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Moses says, who is on the Lord's side? 
Job says, if a man dies, shall he live again? David says, what is man that thou art mindful of? And Malachi says, will a man rob God? A Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? But it's Pilate's question in Matthew 27, 22, that I think is the most important question. Listen to what Pilate says. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Faced with all this, what shall I do with Jesus? I don't think there's none more pertinent today than Pilate's question. What shall I do with Jesus? I want you to think about this for just a moment. Pilate has Jesus in front of him, and he goes, what am I going to do with him? Some of you are sitting today. Folks, I have full confidence that every Sunday I start off and every time I hit a nerve, I have full confidence in this beloved city that I love and I plan on spending the rest of my life in, that there are going to people be so offended that they're going to walk up and leave in the middle of the message. I'm confident of it. So it's just, it's, and, and, and if you haven't today, just wait. We've got 26 letters. I'll get you. I'll get you moving. I'm confident of it. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll even warn you of the letters. I'll, I'll just tell you, when we, when, we get, when we get to these letters, I want, I want you to be prepared um, because, because I want you to understand. But, but you're, when you become face-to-face -face with Christ, you have to make a decision. What are you going to do with him? When Pilate was asked this question, he tried to evade it five different ways. I just thought about it. First, he tried reasoning it away. What do you mean? He, he starts reasoning. He says, I find no fault in him. He said, he's come up short. There's no fault. Isn't that amazing? God was standing before Pilate, and Pilate was saying, I find no fault in him. I want to go, are you out of your mind? You're judging God? Which our society does. We're deciding if we can, we're about judging him or not. It's this, it's this, it's this reasoning. And all of a sudden, he's judging God in front of him. No fault needed to... to in, in, in this man, so we can let him go. If I'm Pilate, and if you were smart, you'd go, do you find fault in me? But he's judging God. Then there was deflection. I call it deflection. Pilate decided to let others make the decision for him. He said, I'll send him back to Herod. And Jesus, but Jesus was in Pilate's hands. Nope, you're going to have to face him. Herod wouldn't take the case. Pilate was going to have to make the decision. You can't deflect this. Then he thought of bargaining. He sought to compromise and strike a bargain. And he thought, maybe I'll just scourge him and let him go, but the people wouldn't have any part of it. Can't bargain with Jesus. You can't deflect. You can't even reason. And then he was going to try substitution. He tried to substitute somebody else. He said, let me, get, let me prosecute Barabbas and let Jesus go. We try to have people as a substitute so many times. We try to substitute and go, I'm not that bad. I've watched this all the time. People will go, I'm not that bad. Look at him. Look at me. They're really messed up. I'm not that messed up. Man, just watch reality TV. And you all of a sudden, you can exonerate yourself on everything. You're going, those people are messed up. So I must be doing pretty good. And all of a sudden, we start using substitution. Listen, if those people are like that, and I'm doing that, listen, I must be okay with God. And then at the end, he started inventing ways to be clean. He tried to proclaim himself clean by washing his hands in water and saying, I wash my hands in this entire matter. Ultimately, Pilate got the answer. 
wrong on the most important question of his lifetime that would have fixed him now and later. And folks, that's why you hear me say these words all the time. Because you have got to get this answer right, your eternity is at stake, and eternity is too long to be wrong. It's too long to be wrong. You've lived long enough with what seems right, and now it's time to get right. It's time to believe what's right. It's time to do what's right. And Jesus made it very clear what's right. Listen to John 3, 7. He said this, you must be born again. Jesus said that. If Jesus said you must, then why are you doing what seems right today? Do what is right, not what seems right today. Jesus said you must be born again. That means you can't make optional what Jesus says is a must. And today Jesus is wanting to build you to build on a firm foundation today. Storms are here. Men are proclaiming that good is evil and evil is good. Men are proclaiming and are going to proclaim that we have lost our minds on 51st and Broadway. But I'm telling you, it's sober truth today. Some have done what they, see, what they thought is right about being a religious person. Will I go to church? Or well, I'm going to get water baptized? Or I'm going to take communion? Or I'm going to do all these things? And I'm telling you, those may seem right, but it's not right. The first step on any relationship with God is what Jesus said. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said. If you're watching from China, if you're watching from Norway, if you're watching from Barbados, from Malawi and from Malaysia, if you're watching from India, it is, there, there is no what seems right. It doesn't, it, it's what is right. What is God saying what is right today? And this is where God wants to begin to come. Here it is. Whatever I say, I can't, I have to understand whatever I'm saying, am I saying it out of a clean heart or am I saying it out of a sinful heart? And the only person that can fix my sinful heart is God himself. It's only God that can fix that. It's only God that can cleanse my heart and fix that heart. Only God can begin to come and take that. The Bible says there is this powerful verse in in the book of, of, uh, of the book of Proverbs, it's Proverbs 30, verse 12. I, we had it on the screen. If you can put it up there for me, it's Proverbs 30, 12, and it says, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, yet they're not washed from their own filthiness. Pure in our own eyes. That's the seems right people. We're pure in our own eyes, but yet you're not washed from your own filthiness. And I'm telling you today, there's an old song that the church used to sing. There is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. That can happen today. A generation that can seem pure, that, that here it is, a generation that are pure in their own eyes. Folks, I don't want to be pure in my own eyes. I want to be pure in God's eyes today. That's where it all starts. That's what happens today. That's where God is calling us. So let's come to the place today as we close. And it doesn't matter what comes out of our mouth. It matters if our heart is clean. Because this, whatever I say here, if this is not right, it doesn't matter at this point. 
God has got to clean our hearts. All over this place, whether you're watching online or in this building, there's no better place to start as we get ready to jump right to the cross next week, as we deal with the atonement. Why Christ came? What does Calvary mean? Why, why on that hill did he have to die? Why could he just send a message that everybody's forgiven? We're going to go through the penalty of substitution. We're going to talk through why he had to die for you. But today, I don't want you to leave this place pure in your own eyes. I want you to leave this place pure in the eyes of God. And let God begin to change you and cleanse you. Here it comes from the inside out. From the inside out. And that can happen today. Because when you don't do, when you don't do it according to God's words, when you don't do it according to God's word, let me just tell you, then you have to come up with these crazy things. I've decided that that's not sin. That's being pure in your own eyes. I've decided that this is right. I've decided that this lifestyle is okay. I've decided that I can continue to do that. I've decided, and folks, it's purity in your own eyes. But today, and it's, it's a place that seems right to man. But folks, I'm telling you, it's end way leads to destruction. And today is a day of freedom. Today is a day of liberty. And today is a day of being cleansed by the power of God today. It is that day. Would you stand with me as we get ready to close? Stand with me. I want to believe for God just to come and do something powerful. Here's, as you close your eyes for just a moment, I want you to listen to it again. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Don't reason it away. Don't judge God on this. Don't become judge and jury of who God is. But you don't like his laws, you don't like his ways, and you don't like his word. Don't deflect it to anything or anybody else, trying to get somebody else to come up with all these other decisions and just to kind of go, float along. Don't bargain. I'll do this. I'll serve you if this happens, and I'll serve you if this goes on, and I'll, don't, don't, no, no bargaining. No substitution. Well, they're bad, and I'm much better than who they are, and no inventing of our own ways. But today, today is a day of cleansing. Not pure in our own eyes, but pure in God's eyes. God cleanse us from our filthy hearts. God, our mouths are speaking from from lawmakers to judges to self-interest groups are speaking from hearts that need to be cleansed, Lord God. Majorities are speaking from, from social media standpoints. And just because there's views and likes, we're thinking, God, that, that the majority is deciding. But today we announce that, God, only you decide what's good. You decide what's evil. Not a majority, but you decide and God, may we not be a generation that are pure in our own eyes. We want to be pure in God's eyes today. God's eyes today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there is a cleansing that's going to come. There's a moment that God wants to come and cleanse you. Some of you have said things and done things, and, you're, and, and, and you have even convinced yourself of it being the truth. But God is going, no, 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 no. Just because you've said it, and just because you've posted it, and just because the majority has agreed with you, now it's time to be right in my eyes. It's time to do this God's way. And if God says you must be born again, we have to start there. 
Let's start with simply a church or I'm religious or I have a title, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant. I'm a minister, I'm an evangelist. None of those titles mean anything. Now God is beginning to speak and say, let me cleanse your heart today. Let me come and cleanse you. Today is a day of cleansing. Today is a day that God wants to come and cleanse our hearts. Those online, balcony, main floor. Jesus said these words. Here it is. You must be born again. You must be born again. That's the cleansing of the heart. It starts with A, admitting that I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm broken on the inside. My heart's broken. My life's broken. It may look together. My salary, my position, my title, what I own may give a facade, but man, one storm is taking it down. And I'm here to tell you today, start with admitting, God, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. And God, I need this condition cleansed. I've been diagnosed as sinful. And God, I believe your diagnosis. How do I fix that, God? By believing that God sent his son 2,000 years ago to fix my sinful condition. Hallelujah. He came 2,000 years ago and said, I'm not going to leave you in that condition. That what you admit, I've come to fix. And not only fix it, but I'm going to do, do the heavy lifting of it. Where you should have died for your own sin, I'm going to die in your place today. I'm going to die for you. Sin demands justice, justice that would have taken our lives, but God sent his son 2,000 years ago to die in my place, to understand that I couldn't fix myself, that I couldn't change myself, that if I can get myself to heaven by being good, that Jesus would never have to come. But God said, you can't get there on your own. You need help. And God sent his son to fix me from the inside out by dying for me, hallelujah. And that's why the C is easy, then confessing him as Lord. If he loves me that much that he would die for me, why wouldn't I say you're in charge of my life? Why wouldn't I say you don't just get Sundays for two hours, you get every day, God. Anything that you would do for me, you would go to that price, pay that price for me. Why would I even resist giving my life to God right now? I don't care if you're here as an athlete, I don't care if you're from the UN, an ambassador, I don't care if you work at Wall Street or you're a single mom making it through on the projects and, 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 on a, and on a fixed income and a fixed check. I don't care if you're sitting here today and you work on Broadway. It doesn't matter. When we get to the cross, we are all sinners. We are all sinners. If you're watching online, this is not an American gospel. This is an American Jesus. You don't get a Norway Jesus and a Belgium Jesus. This is not a Rwanda Jesus or a South African Jesus. Don't let anybody say that. I serve a Jesus who has died for this world. I serve a Jesus who has come to set every man and every woman free. You may be a student at NYU. You may be a student at Fordham. You may be here from Columbia. You may be a professor who snuck in here today. And here's good news for you. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. God can change you from the inside out. 
There are some of you that are, there are some ambassadors, there are some actors in here, there are some professors in here, there's some finance people in here. You have spoken, and just because everybody else listens to you and everybody else, and you've got a staff and you've got a crew and an entourage that keep telling you how beautiful you are and how awesome you are, and you're so cool, just as long as you keep cutting them their checks, let me just tell you something. I want to just let you know today, when it's all said and done, they will be gone when the money's gone, but you need someone who's not going anywhere, and that's Jesus himself. That can happen today. That can happen today. Stop being pure in your own eyes. Let God change you from the inside out. Ah, you don't have to bow your heads. Keep your eyes open. This is the day of salvation. If you're here today, you're online in this place. I'm going to make it as simple as I can. If you're here today and say, Pastor Tim, Jesus said I must be born again, then today I will be. If he said I must, then I will. I've lived a life of what seems right in my own eyes. What seems right in my own eyes. Folks, that is destructive. But today is going to be liberating. It's liberating today. With every head up and every eye lifted around. I don't care if there's one. I don't care if there's a that. doesn't matter. If you're here today and online, you just go, I want, to start a, I want to start a journey with God. I want to start a relationship with God. Today, I want to be born again. Pastor Tim, when you pray that born again prayer, I want to be part of that. Today, I want to start. I don't care who you are. Put me in that prayer today. It doesn't matter who, who, who even came with you today. It doesn't matter. If you go, this is, this is that day. I want God to change you from the inside out. Without any hesitation, balcony man, hold up your hand as high as you can. Hold it up. Hold it up as high as you can. I want to see every hand that's up. Come on. Keep them up. Keep them up. Keep them up, keep them up, keep them up. Over there, 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 over there. Keep them up over there, over there, over there, over there, over there. I got you over there. Keep them up. Over there, over there, over there. Got you over there, over there, but there, there, there. Hallelujah. Online, you just type decided. This is a day for God to set you free. This is a day of freedom. Online, just put decided, and we're gonna begin to pray. Come on, can we pray this together right now? Say this with me out loud. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe. You're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for it. You faced hell for me, so I wouldn't have to go. You rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to be born again. God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper. And heaven is my home in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen and amen and amen. Hallelujah! Thanks so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this message. And be sure to subscribe so you can receive new messages each week. Visit tsc.nyc for all the latest info on how you can stay connected. Also, don't forget that you can follow us on social media on all major platforms at Times Square Church. Thanks for tuning in today. Have a great week.